นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังขังนามาสังสุภาพ thought would be useful to Consider this evening is the way we talk about practice. To talk about the way we talk about practice, and it seems to me important that we appreciate there are different ways of talking about practice. Because if we don't, then We can misunderstand what's being said and uh, get the wrong message. Just because everybody is um, talking about sila samadhi panya, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, precepts, uh, and so on, it doesn't mean to say we're all talking about the same thing. And it's like in uh, everyday conversation. We can misunderstand each other. Like here in the community, we have, I don't know, half a dozen, dozen different nationalities, and not many native English speakers. And even if we're native English speakers, we we're not all English, and we do misunderstand each other. Like this morning, uh, there was that comment that somebody made about gate crashing a party, and uh, Bodhi Nando thought we were talking about the accident when the car smashed into the neighbour's gate. It's a perfectly understandable mistake, but the fact that the car slid in the snow and smashed into the neighbour's gate uh, is not what's meant by gate crashing at a party. Or I was talking to Ajahn Abhinanda, and and I was talking about such and such a person was a hard case, and then realised Ajahn Abhinanda's puzzled look. He, he didn't know what a hard case, and in fact, I think in England they don't use the expression either. It's a New Zealand. Expression for somebody who's um, who's a funny sort of guy. You know, he's a good guy. Good guy. Maybe what up here in Northumberland they call a canny lad. In New Zealand, a canny lad is somebody you don't trust. You know, somebody who's canny, you're really cautious about them. They're a bit devious. And whereas here in Northumberland, a canny lad is you know, he's a he's a good guy. And so anyway, even though we all speak the same language, even if we did speak the same language, it doesn't mean to say we understand each other. Accurately, and when the uh, when the scriptures have been translated, there's you know, translators over the years have mistranslated teachings. And I know myself when I was involved uh, in the very early days of Wat Nan A Chat with Ajahn Turidamo, and uh, we were translating some of Ajahn Chah's talks that were later printed in the book Bodhinyana. And and uh, when I went back later, some years later, and Well, still now, if I listen to those talks, and I, I would translate them differently, because I hear them differently. So, in talking about practice, I think what seems to me to be really worth identifying is whether the person is speaking from a place of what's traditionally called pariyati dhamma or 
the theory of practice or whether they're speaking from a place of patipati, dhamma, or practice itself. So these are different, distinctly different stages of practice that I think if we don't identify them, then we are vulnerable to misunderstanding what's being said. And yet if we do recognize this person here is primarily identified at the level of the theory of practice. And this teaching is coming from the somebody who has really surrendered themselves to practice. This expression of somebody who's surrendered themselves to practice is, is an expression that Ajahn Chah used to use. You know, he was asking a monk this expression, Yom Lali Yang, you know, and, uh, which, which I understand translates in, in this, have you surrendered yet or not? Have you, have you given yourself? Have you stopped fighting? Stop resisting? Have you come out of the thinking about practice and come down to being with this, in this moment, this experience, here and now, whatever's happening is practice. If we've come out of our heads into our whole being with awareness and we're willing to investigate this as practice, that's how I understand what he was talking about, whether we're surrendered ourselves or given ourselves to practice or not. And so somebody who has really surrendered themselves to practice, who's let go uh, of their views and opinions and, and, and is speaking from a place of of feeling their way into an investigation. Such a person is going to use a very different way of speaking from somebody who's speaking from theory. Now, if we don't understand this, then, as I said, we can, we can mis- misinterpret what's being said or we can even miss out completely on what's being said. Now, for somebody who's primarily identified a level of theory of practice, there can be a tremendous sense of confidence and certainty because they've read what the... The Buddha said, and they know what the Buddha said because this is what the Buddha said. It's in the suttas, and and they've grasped at this. And there's this: when you grasp at the feeling of certainty, if you believe what the scripture says is right, and you grasp it, of course you feel you're right. And there's a welled up feeling of certainty, and you can be tremendous energy and confidence. And if you've married that with some intelligence, some mental dexterity, you can come across really forcefully and intimidate people. If the listener is not really confident in their own way of receiving the teachings. Mm. Uh, in the beginning, all of us are, are finding our way and feeling for you know, the, the ground under our feet in practice. And we can be easily intimidated, which is one reason why I wanted to talk about this. Because yeah. as we're feeling our way into practice, and somebody comes along with tremendous enthusiasm and and confidence, and you feel a little bit shaken by that, well, don't be in a hurry to assume they're right and that you don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. From a practice perspective, even when you're feeling a little bit shaken by somebody else's certainty, that feeling shaken, that's also practice. If we're really committed to practice, then, then even when our confidence is shaken, that's okay. We're interested in that. And that's one of the characteristics of somebody who has surrendered themselves to practice is this interest in reality, not just interested in what theory 
about reality. But interest in reality, that means that when we're experiencing disappointment, this is practice. When we're experiencing disillusionment, this is practice. Experiencing desire, this is practice. There's nothing wrong with experiencing desire. The number of times I've heard over the years people say, oh, I've got so much desire, I just, oh, my practice is falling apart completely. Now, practice is falling apart completely if we're not interested in the reality of desire. Or doubts. Oh, I've got so many doubts in practice. I'm not sure. Well, from perspective of really being committed to practice, doubt doesn't have to be an obstacle. Doubt is a painful sensation. That's true. That's dukkha. That's true. But if we look at that dukkha with simple here and now, whole body, mind, judgment-free awareness, we just receive the experience of this dukkha of doubt and we trace it right back, it'll take us deep within our practice. And we can, it actually, doubt can teach us to let go. Deeply. So it really comes down to essentially is where is our relationship to the teaching? For somebody who's primarily identified at the level of pariyati dhamma or uh, a theory of practice, then their relationship is once removed. There's an idea, there's a, uh, a very perhaps very good ideas, and it is very important in the beginning to obviously this is where we start. But somebody who is primarily identified at the level of surrendering to reality in the moment, you're practicing with whatever comes up, then the relationship is what we're investigating. We're not just investigating the views. Like in theory of practice, people argue about views. I think it was the Venerable Miyokyoni. She would say that when practitioners of different traditions get together, talking about Zen and Tibetans and Theravadans and Christian contemplatives. When practitioners of the different traditions get together, she said there's a nodding of head in agreement. There's just a recognition. But when scholars of even the same tradition get together, there's a shaking of heads in disagreement. They all argue. Even of the same tradition, those who are still committed at the level of theory of practice end up arguing about who's right and who's wrong. But if you have surrendered yourself to practice, well then, getting caught up in any view or opinion, even if it's the Buddha's views and opinion, if we're arguing about it, well, we're not practicing. That particular point on relationship to views and opinions was, for me, as some of you will have heard me say before, was a real turning point in my own early life as a monk when... when, um, I was still living in Bangkok and, and Warapanyo, one of Ajahn Chah's monks, came down to Bangkok and I was still figuring which monastery should I go and live with, which teacher should I go and live with. In those days there were uh, lots of the old masters were still alive. Ajahn Mahabur was there, Ajahn Tate, Ajahn Phan, Ajahn Kao, and of course Ajahn Chah. And, and so I was trying to figure which is the best place to go and live and and so, and I was particularly concerned about <clears throat> what was meant by right view, because that's the first fact of the Eightfold Path. And obviously, I wanted to, you know, go somewhere where they had right view and uh, who was teaching right view. And the books, I said, right view is like this. I said, they're going to do this. We're going to believe in that. And 
and trust in this and so on and this teaches us this and this teaches us that and so when Warapanya was in Bangkok and and I asked him I said what what did Ajahn Chah what does Ajahn Chah say about right view and Ajahn Chah and he says oh Ajahn Chah says don't attach to any views if you attach to any views and opinions then you make it wrong view even if it's the Buddha's view if you attach to it you make it wrong view and and at that point, I reckon, oh, that's a different, that's a different uh, perspective on practice. That's a different approach. It's one that certainly rang true for me. That the way we relate to the teachings uh, is very important. And in my case, I would say it's primary. Whereas if somebody is still relating at the level of theory, then even though they sound very confident and very energetic, it may not necessarily come across as an invitation to share an inquiry. Yeah. If you're listening to teachings by anybody, any teacher, any monk or nun, Theravada, Mahayana, or, or Christian or Muslim, or any, anybody who is really committed to practice, and you listen to their, their Dhamma talk, then... I suggest what you're going to hear, what you're going to feel is like an invitation to share an inquiry. You're not going to be hearing a sermon where it's just uh, preaching at us on uh, the way things are. But having said all that, uh, that's not to, that shouldn't be construed as diminishing the relevance of Pariyati Dhamma. Of course, the Buddha taught Pariyati Dhamma. The, the level of the theory of practice is where we start. If we don't have a, a very good grasp on conventional right view, then we can seriously go off and we can get very confused. And so in the beginning, it's important that we read the books and we study about Dhamma. But it's how far we go with that and what we're getting off. And if we're grasping at the theory of practice, well, then we're feeding on the wrong thing. Like that, uh, that, that woman who asked Ajahn Chah about that question about Abhidhamma when, when Ajahn Chah was in England and, and she asked him a, a very complicated question about Abhidhamma and he said, oh, I think you're feeding on the wrong thing, lady. You know, you're eating the chicken droppings instead of the eggs. It is <laughs> in the theory of practice, it's like that sometimes. You know, we, we can be picking at the wrong thing, you know, is this teacher right? Is that teacher right? What did the Buddha really mean by this? You know, you're going down into, into getting arguments about what the Buddha really meant. Whereas maybe we've already got a good enough grasp on the theory of practice to be able to start investigating the way we relate to the practice. What are we trying to do by trying to get this feeling of absolute certainty, the absolute right understanding of the teachings? You can't get the right understanding of the teachings by reading the teachings. You can't get the right understanding of the teachings by listening to teachings. The right understanding of teachings is something that can only arise within our own hearts and minds. And to get that, well then of course we need to learn to what? We need to learn to let go of our grasping at the teachings. The teachings, the words, the forms are not Dhamma. They're an approximation of Dhamma, just like the Buddha image is not the Buddha. And the Buddha image is a, a symbol of the Buddha. Monks and nuns are a symbol of the Sangha. 
They're a conventional Sangha. The books are a conventional Dhamma. But we don't want to grasp at them. That's the wrong thing. That's eating the chicken droppings instead of the chicken eggs. But again, to to emphasize, it is very important that we, we know about the teachings because otherwise we can go off in the wrong direction. It's just like having a road map. Or a tom-tom. You've got a really good tom-tom in the car and you punch in where you want to go and there it gives you the map, gives you the direction to go to. It's all spelled out. That's very good. But we haven't taken the journey. So taking the journey is the practice. But it's important before we do that that we know enough about the practice. But we're not looking at the map endlessly imagining what it's like to reach the goal. Or the example of um, uh, medicine. I, I'm thinking about having a um, some surgery on my knee, and I was talking to the doctor about it the other day, and about which surgeon I might go to see, because I don't want to go and see some surgeon who's only just left school. You know, I, I want to know how many knee operations the surgeon's done successfully before I let him uh, take a knee, knife to my knee. And that's it. You know, of course, the surgeon needs to go to school. He needs to go to university. He needs to learn about knee operations. But that's not all there is to it. When it comes down to really doing successful knee operations, you know, he, he studies under somebody else for a while. He's got a, a consultant that he, he, lo- he stands alongside during the operation. He learns, and that's how it is for us also, that once we learn a certain amount about this path of practice about what's involved in letting go about what we're going to encounter as we move along the path about the, the wonderful things that can happen about the difficult things that can happen about the dangers and the, and the temptations and the threats and the delusions that can come yeah. if we stand along some, beside somebody if we walk along beside somebody who's walked for, further and longer than we have well, then we can pick up something from them. Now, if we are really arrogant and really conceited, well, then we can just head off on our own and we don't read the books. We just say, well, I trust in awareness. I just trust in awareness because awareness seems to be the main thing, really. And, and you read one page of one book and the Buddha praised uh, the cultivation of satipanya. And so you say, well, that seems to be awareness, so I'm going to cultivate awareness. And so you just head off on your own cultivating a lot of awareness but we could be missing out on a lot of uh, benefit from learning a little bit more on the level of pariyati but to remember even as we're studying pariyati even as we're learning about the dhamma and the vinaya because that's the same thing for monks learning about the vinaya you, you can learn about the rules to know what is an offence what's not an offence and how to fix an offence yeah. How to learn about the Dhamma and the Vinaya. Even as we go along to that, we, we, it's important, it's useful to bear in mind that this is an approximation of Dhamma Vinaya. Whatever anybody says is an approximation. It's a representation, it's a symbol, it's not the real thing. And if we bear that in mind, well, then we're not going to get too seduced by somebody else's enthusiasm or somebody else's confidence. We're going to always be here, listening to our own hearts, 
listening to what's going on here when somebody's giving a Dhamma talk and you think, oh, you, oh that's wonderful, that's amazing, that's incredible, but you're listening, is it? Yeah, well, maybe the guy's totally deluded also. Yeah. Or you're listening to talking, oh, what a load of rubbish, I wish you'd stop talking. And what's it mean, what's it like, what's, ha- what's happening in our own hearts when we're having to listen to something we don't like? Liking and disliking, what is the reality, what is the Dhamma of liking and disliking? Kilesas. Now you can read in the books all about kilesas. You can read in the in the suttas about kilesas. You can listen to all the great masters talk about kilesas. But does that mean to not say we know about kilesas? Do we know kilesas when they arise? Can we recognize preferences when they arise in the mind? Preferences are a movement. Can we see that movement? Over the last couple of days, I've been uh, designing a book cover for Ajahn Amaro's book, Small Boat, Big Mountain. It's been translated into Italian, and Ajahn Chandapala asked me to do the book cover. And I said, well, I'm very happy to do it, but you better get Ajahn Amaro's approval, because he's a man of high standards. And uh, so I did my design, and I sent it to Ajahn Amaro, and he said, oh, that's wonderful, that's marvellous, but how about you change this, and how about you change that? And so he sent it back, and I changed this, and I changed that, and I sent it back to him again. He said, oh, that's, inc- that's wonderful, that's really fine, but you could still change this, and so I changed it, and uh, eventually he approved it. And it was all over the fonts that we used. He wanted serif fonts, and I wanted a mixture of serif and sans-serif fonts. And when it came down to it, well, it's just preference. I mean, I like myself a mixture of serif and sans-serif on the cover of a book. He doesn't. He likes all serif fonts. And uh, so his preferences, of course, because I'm doing something for him, I'm happy to do what he wants. But in the process of doing that, uh, we also had this little correspondence, we were communicating by email, about preferences. If we just know what the books say about preferences, about that movement of mind that we're referring to by the word preferences or kilesas, liking and disliking, if we just know about it but we can't see it in the moment, well, it it does us a certain amount of good. We've got the map of the journey. We know about kilesas. We know about the tendency to take sides for and against. And we know that when we do that, we get lost and we we cause, we build up stress in our system. If we're addicted to taking sides for and against, we build up stress in the system, tension, dukkha. If we're practicing, there's liking. And we can see, like, I like a mixture of serif and sans-serif fonts. Ajahn Amaro likes total serif fonts. Now, if we're attached to one, then we end up disagreeing. Fortunately, over this minor matter, Ajahn Amaro and I were able to agree very comfortably, and it wasn't a problem. But look at the uh, real difficulties we have in life, and you see where they come from. Even if we have a good appreciation of the theory of practice, can we actually see at the moment where we're becoming partial Removing that, I don't like that person. Can we see that, or do we become it? You know, or I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like when the food, we're going down the line, you see the food in the bar. Oh, I like that, and you, and you reach and you take more than you really need to eat. Why? Because we didn't really see that movement of mind as a movement of mind. We became it. So the difference between the theory of practice and the practice of practice is a world apart. <clears throat> I often think about when I was at school and 
they were teaching us chemistry. And uh, I remember seeing this, what they called a sugar molecule on the desk. This is a sugar molecule. This is what the teacher said. This is a sugar molecule. C6H12O6. So six carbon, 12 hydrogen, six oxygen. Did I get it right? C6H12O6. And there's these things that are stuck on the desk, all connected by little rods. And so this is a sugar molecule. No, it's not. I mean, there's no way you'd put that on your porridge in the morning, is it? You would not put that thing on the porridge. But the teacher says, this is a sugar molecule. This is not a sugar molecule. It is a sugar molecule. No, it's not. And this is what goes on between scholars and practitioners. Yeah. The scholars, they listen to those who are committed to practice talking and say, oh, these guys really don't know what they're talking about. All that waffle about awareness, you know, they don't really know what they're going on about at all. It's just their own views and opinions. Well, maybe they don't realize that they're coming from a different place. Then, of course, there's the difficulty of those who are committed to practice but haven't done enough study, and they're very critical of the scholars and saying, oh, they're just stuck and reading their books. Well, the, maybe the wise approach would be to see that the Pariyati level of practice and the Patipati level of practice, these are different approaches, different stages to a right approach to practice. These are different stages to the right approach to, pra- approach to practice. We need both of them, but how we relate to them is what really matters. So as I said this evening, I wanted to mention these things so that when you're listening to Dhamma talks or you're reading teachings, hearing teachings or reading teachings, that you don't forget to read your own heart and mind. You know, to say, how does that affect me? Where, does this, where do I think this person's coming from? It's okay to have a, a sense of where the other person is coming from, where the speaker is coming from. They may sound very enthusiastic, but you know, where does that... Where does that what does that touch within you? How does that feel within you? Hmm. Even if you think the person is right, just to grasp at this person's teachings, as if this is the person who's got the ultimate teachings, even if it really feels really, really good, this is where guru worship comes from, which has not got a place in, in Buddhist teachings. The Buddha was very clear about not worshipping the guru, uh, even though the Buddha was a guru, a profound guru, uh, a great teacher, a great master. Uh, there was that one monk, Wakali, I think it was Wakali, I think was his name. He caught this young monk, Wakali, staring, looking at him one day, and he said, Wakali, you're looking at the wrong thing. Yeah. It's not the form of the Buddha you're supposed to be looking at. Yeah. It's not even the form of the teachings, but it's the message you're supposed to be looking here at your own heart, how does that affect me? So even if what the teacher says is great, and even if it's right, we don't lose ourselves, we don't forget ourselves, we keep reading the Dhamma in our own hearts. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.